0: Hi, I'm Melissa Pindak, Mind, Body, Green's Chief Content Officer. Today I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Anna Youssef to the Mind, Body, Green podcast. Anna is a psychiatrist with her own private practice in New York City, and she is currently a lecturer at Yale Medical School, where she is creating a mental health and spirituality program. But her path wasn't always so clear. After working as a neurobiology researcher and completing her studies at Stanford University, Yale Medical School, and the NYU Psychiatry Residence Training Program, Anna felt that something was missing from her life. In her quest to find it, she traveled, lived, and worked in over 50 countries while studying Kabbalah, learning Buddhist meditation, and working with South American shamans and Indian gurus. On this quest, she found that there's a strong connection between spirituality and happiness, and she feels that a connection to the soul is an important source of solace and guidance, especially during difficult times. Anna feels a true connection to her patients and has an unwavering commitment to her work. In this conversation, we talk about soulmates, existential anxiety, the science of spirituality, and so much more. One of the things that makes Anna so interesting is that she believes that there is a unifying connection between all patients and their healers, and I'm excited to share with you all her views on how to cultivate soul-body connections. Anna, welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd love to start out by talking a little bit about what got you interested to begin with in this connection between spirituality and happiness or fulfillment. So as I often say, had you asked me 10 years prior
1: to the start of my process— I would have laughed at the idea of spirituality. It wasn't a part of my life at all. I was trained very much as a traditional doctor. I went to Yale Medical School, prior to that to Stanford, studying neuroscience, studying philosophy. And then my life took an unexpected turn when I went to my residency. And what happened was I had a dream. And the dream had a sign that said Kabbalah Revealed. And I didn't know what it meant. I went to my bookshelf, thought maybe it was a book I had on my shelf that I had overlooked. No such book. And then a few weeks later, a girlfriend invited me to um, lunch at a restaurant called Avra. And we went to Avra, and on the way to that restaurant, I saw that sign from my dream, Kabbalah Revealed. And lo and behold, I was like, what is this? So I went in and became curious and took a class, and that ended up changing my life in a very unanticipated direction. Kabbalah became a part of who I am and a part of my spiritual studies and also just kind of opened me up to this other world, to a way in which our minds and our world can exist that's very different to what I learned in medical school.
0: And what is that? What was the big difference?
1: So in medical school, you know, as a doctor, you're taught that everything that is reality is seen with your eyes, heard with your ears, is basically empirical. It's subject to experimentation, something that you can understand, something that you could um, understand, I mean, you know, in terms of scientifically, rationally, something that really is observable and reproducible. And spirituality is really everything but. It's something that is often intangible, personal, subjective, transcendent. In Kabbalah, the way that they describe it is, what we see in this world is actually 1% of all of reality. Whereas in medical school, what we see in this world is 100% of reality. So in Kabbalah, 99% of reality is really the unseen and the unheard. It's really that which transcends. And often, it's hard to tap into it directly. We can see it by inference.
0: So how did that influence the way that you were working with patients and the way that you proceeded in terms of your practice?
1: For many years, it didn't. You know, being a doctor, I was trained a certain way, and I went forward to learn um, really to be the best psychiatrist I could possibly be, and I learned about all the different tenets of psychoanalysis of existential psychiatry, cognitive behavioral psychiatry, interpersonal psychiatry. And they were very, very powerful and positive tools. But then I realized with many patients, something was missing. And it was this deep connection that spirituality offered me in my own searching. Um, really connecting me to my soul, connecting me to authenticity. And for the patients who were interested in that, we started to dwell a little deeper and we started to look into those parts of their lives. And I started doing more spiritual histories and understanding what their role was with soul, with spirit, what their understanding was, how they grew up and whether that was relevant to their lives now. And if so, how can we use those ideas in the service of their healing? What does the spiritual history mean? a spiritual, it's a great question, right? It's not something that you go to a doctor and they usually take a spiritual history. So a spiritual history is really everything that a person does and did and plans to do in order to support their own soul or spirit. So How did they grow up? Did they go to church? Did they go to synagogue? Did they go to mosque? Do they have a religion, a religious affiliation? Do they consider themselves a spiritual person? Do they see themselves as a part of something greater than themselves? And does that influence how they live their lives and their values and their morals? What kind of spiritual principles, if any, guide their lives? Are they an atheist? And by the way, there's many spiritual atheists. You certainly don't have to believe in God in order to be spiritual. The way I understand spirituality is that it's a connection to something greater than oneself, something that is transcendent and can be a source of solace and guidance, especially during difficult times in our life.
0: And how do you find for people that have grown up with a certain tradition but left it behind or have changed the way that they think about spirituality, how does that influence life today? Yeah, and for many people
1: that's a huge part of their identity. They grew up with one form of spirituality which defined them, which was comfortable, which was familiar. But then as they really connected to who they are, they developed their own authentic version of spirituality which could be totally in line with what it was that they how they grew up or totally different. And it makes me think actually of um, a woman I know who at the age, neither of her parents were Jewish, but at the age of 13, she told her parents, you know what? I need to convert. I feel like I have a Jewish soul. And her parents really honored that. It's really interesting, right? Because neither, it wasn't coming from mom and dad. It was maybe coming from friends, but really just her soul sent something. And then her parents honored that. She converted and she became Jewish at the age of 13. So that's an unusual story, but it really is that when we are open to it, the guidance will come and we're able to then follow that guidance in whatever way the universe needs to take us.
0: And how does getting in touch with that transform people's lives? Or how does taking that kind of a step or getting in touch with that spirituality affect outcomes that you're seeing?
1: Yeah. So I'll maybe first tell you how it affected my own life, and then I'll tell you how it affected my patients' lives. So for my own life, I was, up until the time that spirituality came into my life, doing everything that I thought I was supposed to be doing. I was going to medical school, being a good student. I was in a relationship. I had lots of friends. I was a good daughter. You know, all those things, the shoulds. But there is something missing, and when I look back, a part of me was totally disconnected from my own soul, and I didn't even know it because I was trying so hard to do all these things that were expected of me. And it was upon connecting to that part of myself that everything started to change, including how I practice medicine. I didn't you know, change professions. I didn't go run in, even though I did for a while. I did spend time in India. I did spend time in Thailand learning meditation and in Israel learning about Kabbalah. But I didn't run away from my life because really spirituality is about You know, taking it and living your life in the mundane, you know, duties of your life, not necessarily escaping, though escaping could be helpful temporarily. (laughs) But, That was how it changed my life. It really gave me a new level of authenticity. And for other people, for patients, I find that when we utilize spirituality, when they're open to it, because not everybody is and not everybody has to be. You know, you as a doctor, you meet a patient where they're at. But when they are open, it transforms and it helps healing in a way that is usually quicker and more thorough and often with unexpected twists and turns that get you even further than we would get if it was purely psychological or purely psychiatric
0: in our approach. Now you've said that you think that patients can only go as far as you personally have been able to go yourself. I'm curious about that. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that's so important and how that's influenced your own journey? Absolutely. And I believe that that's
1: for any healer. And that's why it's so important for healers to be able to keep working on themselves and keep really unearthing whatever it is within us that needs to be transformed, whatever that is. So Kabbalah sees it as manifestations of ego, right? And the manifestations of ego are multifold, including our anger, our hatred, our greed, our jealousy, our Um, need to control everything, to name just a few, right? And those are normal human qualities. We all have them. And some of them, like anger, for instance, anger enables people to set boundaries, to say no. It's a very powerful thing if used in the right way, but it also could completely consume people and undermine their effectiveness as leaders and otherwise. So in my own life, And, you know, I've been working on myself up until the spiritual path came into my life. But I feel like the spiritual path catapulted me to do so in a different way and much, much faster. And it's not to say, you know, it's ever complete. It's I'm still very much working on myself and plan to continue until, you know, I, (laughs) while I'm still here, as long as we're alive, we still have work to do. And, you know, I feel like it's layers of an onion. You work through one thing. And then you get to the next layer. You work through another, then you peel the next layer off. And that's why it's so important for us as practitioners to keep working because it's true. We can't take a patient beyond where we ourselves have gone. You know, we could understand, we can empathize, but to really embody the change that we're looking to create in another is, I think, what's necessary for a
0: practitioner to really take, you know, go to the next level. What are the top issues that you see in patients? What are people coming in with? What are they struggling with?
1: Yeah, and that, you know, it changes over time, but it's also so interesting. I was just talking to somebody two days ago about this, about how um, often people come kind of in clumps, like we'll have three cases of the exact same issue, like three cases of people who are going through divorces, and then three cases of people who somehow have felt abandoned by God which actually was a recent theme this has happened like in the last two weeks and then three cases of people who cannot find their soulmates and keep drawing in emotionally unavailable men into their lives you know so I think that those are like three of the more recent ones and then more traditional things you know what do you make of those clusters why do you think they come like that I feel it's always that whatever's out there is usually a reflection on some level of what's within so it must be something that on some level I'm grappling with in my own way like maybe I somehow felt abandoned by God in some way or I felt somehow I'm drawing in emotionally unavailable people which by the way was my story prior to meeting my soulmate many years ago I wrote about that in my book So seeing the things coming in is really just also look inside not in a self-interested like it's all about you way No, but whatever's out there is a hint or a glimpse into
0: what we ourselves need to transform So you were saying that it changes over time and that these are some of the recent things that you've seen But what are some of the themes that have come up? Okay, so i'll
1: tell you about some of um the patients who, I have a number of patients looking for their soulmates right now, this is a big theme. Um, and this is all women who are powerful, successful, amazing, doing so well in their lives, no problems in the area of professional success, career, et cetera, the problems are in being able to connect deeply to another person and have the kind of life that they want with that person. And these are also people who are super, super motivated because they're so career focused, they're doing so well in their careers, but this is the part of their life that they just can't like surrender. You know, in a way, finding your soulmate as so many other things that really are a little bit divinely inspired, right? Because some people say it's a numbers game, but really, there's, if you're spiritual, there's like a hand of God in it too. There's an element of surrender that you need in order to truly find the right person for you. So, what I find is that a lot of people are trying to like, so hard force the process and what do i do what's the next step what's the next step the next step is to be patient the next step is just to wait the next step is to pray the next step is to be open the next step is to make yourself available as opposed to the very active intense the next step is i need to go and meet 80 million people tomorrow i need to put myself on five other social media sites or you know in order to not to say that those things are wrong of course if indeed that's something you hadn't been doing before do all that make yourself more available but often in order to attract the right person, there's interchange that needs to be, you know, done.
0: And you said this was your personal story as well. It was my
1: personal story, very much. So yes. Yeah. So my personal story in that regard was, um, at the time actually that spirituality came into my life, I was looking for my soulmate, and I had this pattern. I kept drawing in these emotionally unavailable men, one after the other, and it was like, oh my god, I've met this person. He's amazing. We have this great connection. And as long as I wasn't fully available to him, he was so interested, he was pursuing me, et cetera. And then suddenly I become available and I'm like, oh, wow, this could really be something. This has relationship potential. And then suddenly he's gone. And this kept repeating. I'm like, why is this happening to me? And so eventually as it kept happening, I kept... Like thinking, why is this happening? And then realizing that there's a really important spiritual principle at play. We don't draw into our lives who we want. We draw into our lives who we are. I kept drawing these emotionally unavailable men because a part of me was emotionally unavailable. And so it was only by recognizing that and starting to work specifically on that, trying to open my heart, trying to be more open, trying to surrender really what I'm talking about, you know, with the people in my practice it's really about surrender and realizing there's something bigger at us than us at play. And maybe I hadn't met my soulmate because I had some lessons I needed to learn. And so to be more patient, to go through this process. And then finally, thank God, um, my
0: soulmate came into my life. Let's talk a little bit about anxiety, something that plagues a lot of people, that a lot of people are struggling with, either on a very small way or on a much bigger scale. I'm curious about how much this comes up in your practice and how much how you tackle it. Yeah, anxiety comes up all the time. Anxiety is one of the main things that I deal with.
1: And anxiety also is one of the existential consequences of being human, right? So part of it is something that we want to treat, especially if it's incapacitating. Part of it is the recognition that having existential anxiety is what it means to be a human being. And in that tradition, the existential psychotherapy tradition, I often will draw on the work of Dr. Irvin Yalom, who's actually an atheist and completely not spiritual, but he has really brilliant ideas about anxiety in existence, and he believes that all of anxiety comes from one of four things that we as human beings struggle to cultivate in this world. One of them is our struggle and quest for purpose and meaning in our life. The second is our freedom to do with our life that which we want. And freedom entails responsibility, and responsibility and freedom both together are very anxiety-provoking. The third one is fear of death, because at the end, you know, everything ends. And the fourth one is our struggle with aloneness in this world because we come into this world alone and we leave alone. You know, despite all the people that can be in our life, everybody struggles with aloneness. So when people come with anxiety, this existential framework is also one of the ones that I often use. And then, and do you think that all anxiety can be tied back to one of these four? Usually on some level it could, and of course it could be other things too. You know, for some people... There are biological consequences. You know, there are really biological conditions that can predispose people to anxiety, to depression, things like that. So that's really important. For instance, people could have thyroid abnormalities. People can have, you know, any sort of vitamin deficiencies, like vitamin D or B12. So it's really important to first look and rule out any sort of medical bio, you know, biochemical um, conditions that could be predisposing. So that's the first step. Um, beyond that. Once the medical um, conditions are ruled out, and of course, you know, other causes of anxiety are transitions in people's lives, a new job, a divorce, uh, losing one's job, a move, coming to a new city, the the grief from losing, you know, somebody. But all of those usually do somehow trace back to one of those four things. Yeah. So then how
0: do you start to tackle that? Those seem it seems very clear but it also seems pretty overwhelming yeah so right so how do you treat anxiety right it's like i think first and foremost is
1: creating that space for somebody whoever it is to really speak the truth and feel heard heard and understood because at the end of the day that is what most people want more than anything else: is to feel heard and understood. So that's the first thing, and then you know, because what you're, the question that you're asking could be boiled down to: how does therapy work, right? <laughs> for anxiety, for depression, for so first, it's creating that space and container. Second, it really is together with the person who you're with, constructing a narrative and creating meaning to whatever it is that they're experiencing. Third, it's giving them some tools. If the anxiety is overwhelming, what are some tools that they can have to reduce it, to feel more in control of it, to be able to deal with the parts of it that feel out of their control? Those tools for some people could be even if needed, if they've tried so many other things, could be medication, that's one possible tool. Those tools could also be cognitive strategies, different exercise, supplements, a whole bunch of different things. And then, if and when people are open to it, of course, we evoke spirit, we evoke spirituality, and we use that also as a tool for you know, being able to manifest what they want to manifest, change what they want to change, and of course, deal with anxiety along the way
0: what are some of the cognitive tools that you find really helpful? Is there something you can tell listeners right now that they could try? Um, Definitely. Is there there a small practice that they might be able to use?
1: Yeah. So anxiety and fear often are very connected. And I talk to my patients a lot about fear. This is something we frequently struggle with. And fear, I really like the mnemonic F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. The majority of our fears really are just illusions. And so if we can take our fears and if we can start to think which what part of the fear is constructive what part of the fear is realistic everything maybe is you know there's a 1% chance this could happen but if there's a 99% chance it can't can we like maybe weigh the evidence a little bit more in your mind to give you a better assessment of what's real and what's possible versus what's not. Because oftentimes fear and anxiety, it overwhelms us to the point where it's no longer rational. So to be able to use the rational mind to work with anxiety and fear is really palpable. But sometimes the fear will overwhelm the rational mind, such as phobias, such as when you get on a plane and you have a panic attack and you just can't. So in those cases, you have to go deeper. You have to go into the limbic system and into the amygdala to start to really look at emotional ways to meet anxiety where it's at.
0: You also mentioned supplementation. Mm-hmm. What supplements do you recommend for anxiety? Yeah, so some supplements that I've used in my practice for
1: anxiety. Obviously, first we do you know, like I talked about, we use vitamin B, vitamin D. Those are a lot of the medically you know recommended things, especially if there's any deficiencies in vitamins. But also, you can use um, the omega three fish oil. That helps with anxiety. Um, I've used with patients kava kava. Um, depending on what the causes of anxiety are, sometimes actually anxiety comes from low energy. People feel like something's off and they feel so much anxiety because they don't feel like themselves. Things like rhodiola, things like ginseng have been very helpful. St. John's wort, but be careful. Um, St. John's wort could actually make your birth control pill network. So it's really important that you do do that with your doctor and not just on your own. Those are just a few. And I use actually a number of other supplements too with patients.
0: And then what is the spirituality anxiety connection?
1: Yeah. So Sometimes, like I'm just thinking about a patient of mine who right now is really struggling to find her soulmate and is doing everything and she goes into these fears and and these fear spells that it's really hard to pull yourself out of. And at the end of the day, if we really look at the root of the fear, it's not I'm not going to find my soulmate. It's a deeper fear. It's like God has abandoned me. That's the fear. And so oftentimes, and that's actually a higher level fear than like, I can't find my soulmate, because I can't find my soulmate is kind of like, I need this and I want this and I want it on my terms and I want it now. That God has abandoned me, it's like a fear of being disconnected from the light of the creator. So you often will want to transform the lower level fears into the higher level fears to actually see what's really at the root of it. And then you're like, well, what, you know, is God going to abandon me? I don't think so. Am I going to abandon God? No, if I don't abandon God, God's probably not going to abandon me and somehow understanding it as that really puts the other lower
0: level fear of I can't find my soulmate into a little bit more perspective. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about your approach to spirituality is that it is really science-backed and that you have um, a lot of understanding about the science and the research that goes into spirituality. Can you talk a little bit about where we are in terms of science and spirituality and where you think the research is or what the interesting research that's emerging around spirituality is? Definitely. So more and more it's being found that spiritual practices and whatever that entails
1: for people, whether it be secular spiritual practices like meditation, yoga, or whether it be more religious spiritual practices like going to church, going to synagogue, that having that in one's life actually reduces anxiety, reduces depression, improves mental health, reduces addiction, improves physical health, improves Especially, also, you know, people's capacity to deal with sometimes terminal conditions. So, the two places in medicine where a spiritually based model is the medical standard of care is addiction care and hospice care. Addiction care, because the AA model is one of the medical standards of care, and the AA model is actually a spiritually based model. The first three steps of the 12-step program are, um, "I can't, you can. I turn it over to you," like saying this to God, like I, I'm powerless to this addiction. God can help me, I turn it over to God. Those are like the kind of a summary of the three steps, the three first steps. And in hospice care, people have to deal with end of life, and they have to deal with the concept of afterlife. And they're really in the medical literature, you know, as Atul Gawande says in his book, Being Mortal, we're not really taught about dying. We're taught about keeping people alive in medical school. We're not really prepared to help shepherd people to the other side because we've never been there. We have our own fears. We really just don't often have the tools. And that's where spirituality comes in. So this is another place in medicine where spirituality is so poignant and potent.
0: In this age of data and testing and all the information that we can get, I mean, we know more about our sleep cycles and our patterns and all the specific biomarkers of our blood and all of this. What role do you think spirituality plays in that, when you can get so much information and yet something can still be missing? Absolutely. That's such a great question because it really points to the difference
1: between information and knowledge, right? Information is just data, and we have a ton of it. We have so much of it that we don't know what to do with it. It overwhelms us. We have 80 million emails, which ones are we supposed to read? We get 50 podcasts in our, you know, mailboxes. Which ones are we going to listen to? By the way, thank you for listening to this one. <laughs> and <laughs> but nevertheless, it's like we're overwhelmed. Now, the difference between information and knowledge Knowledge actually is useful. Knowledge informs us as to how we should live our life. Knowledge gives us insight as to how we can elevate our consciousness and take the next steps. It's like a much, much, much higher level of information. And so even though spirituality may not be something that you could measure in the same way with a blood test or with an EKG or with an EEG for your brain, though obviously there's a lot of data right now that you know neuroscience is showing that there is a God part of the brain and things like that, that all being said, It is something that is more in the realm of knowledge because it gives people tools by which they can live and transform their lives. And it's not something that is often just information. Unless, of course, you make it so. Some people will intellectually process spiritual information and it won't be a part of their life. That's okay too. That's kind of, you know, people do that all the time with all sorts of things. But It could be a very powerful form of knowledge. And then an even higher form is actually wisdom, is when you really take it and apply and you change yourself and your life because of it. What was that about the God part of your brain that's actually being studied? It's actually quite fascinating. There is research showing that when you have certain thoughts or when you engage in prayers, there's certain parts of your brain that light up. And that's not surprising because there's you know, parts of your brain responsible for everything. But the fact that there is a part of the brain involved specifically with God you know, or the act of prayer or the act of connecting to something greater, this is especially studied in realms of meditation and the brains of experienced meditators who are connected to something greater than themselves for you know many, many, many years have substantially different brains than the rest of us.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about some of the patients that you've worked with who have had very um, significant experiences with tapping into spirituality, with having that kind of working with you and having that kind of spiritual practice be a part of um, of their treatment and what kinds of outcomes you've seen and how you've seen their lives shift?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like really interesting healers are brought into my life at different times. And I'll tell you a story of, um, one patient who has had, um, a certain form of cancer for 10 years. It was a stage four cancer at the time that she started working with me about five years ago. She and I worked together for five years. And then, um, I met through a totally different contact, another person who was a spiritual healer. He goes in and he just removes, he calls it entities and other things that, and and then he gets a vision about a patient. And, um, I thought, you know, she was doing her chemotherapy. It was already so many years. She hadn't gotten the results she wanted. Maybe I can connect her to this, to this healer. She was very open to it. She's a very spiritual person, and she's a very high power executive in her life, but has a very, very spiritual side that is open to. At this point, she's like, I'll do anything. I want to get rid of this cancer, and this healer. Um, gave her a vision. I'm not going to go into detail just to pres- you know preserve the confidentiality of the treatment that was so meaningful to her. It was a person who didn't know her at all. And he lifted whatever needed to be lifted. She had her next treatment, and it was the first time ever, and this was literally within the last year, that she had a stage, that complete remission in her cancer after 15 years of being stage wow. four. And I was overjoyed. She was overjoyed, the healer was overjoyed. But I feel like those things often happen, and it's really synchronicity, which is meaningful coincidences of this person coming into my life who connected to my patient, who all, it all worked out. Now, a skeptic can say, well, what if that was just the new treatment that she was doing? What if it had nothing to do with the healer? That's true, that could very well be. And we just don't know. And so we create our own meaning and narrative of events. And so for us, for myself and for the patient, the fact that this all happened was meaningful. We don't know what the actual causality was. We very rarely do. In psychoanalysis, there's this uh, concept called overdetermination, meaning everything's over-determined. Nothing's caused by just one thing. Everything's caused by multiple things. But the fact that for her, she opened herself to spirituality and the spiritual healing came just when she needed it. And then she was in remission both for her and myself, that was so meaningful.
0: You're obviously very connected to your patients. You, this story and um, what you were speaking about earlier in terms of your patients coming into your life and you seeing yourself reflected in them. In your book, you talk about an experience that you had where you were so connected to a patient that you actually woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning um, with a, in sweats, thinking about them um, and being connected to the experience that they were having. Yes. What is what is that connection? Do you think between between patient and healer, between um, patient and psychiatrist? Yes. What is that? Yes. I'll tell you about that case that you um, just asked about, and then I'll, I'll ask the bigger answer the
1: bigger question about our interconnectedness as human beings and what that means. So that particular case was a patient at that point I'd been treating for seven years, and I had gone on a trip to the Ukraine, and just like you said, I woke up in the middle of the nights with like a panic attack. Patients have dis- described middle of the night panic attacks. I personally had never had one so but i knew that that was happening and i was completely beside myself had no idea what was going on i felt like something was really wrong and so i checked my email and a second prior my patient had texted me that he was feeling suicidal and by virtue of getting that text i was able to call him and literally and figuratively talk him off the ledge he's fine now if i hadn't called perhaps he still would have been fine we don't know and But that's the whole thing. We just don't know. But the fact that that happened was still, it's really about the meaning that we construct of the events. It was so meaningful to my patient that his doctor literally called him from another country in the middle of the night at the time that he had texted. And to me, it was so meaningful that I had woke up with a start feeling that something was so wrong. And so right. That the question is, what is it that enables that? And I feel that it's actually a force greater than us that connects us all. And it really goes, you know, even Albert Einstein talked about this delusion of consciousness, that the separation that we see ourselves all as separate and not as interconnected really is this delusion that we live in accordance with because quantum physics is showing more and more that at the level of energy and matter, we really are all connected. As much as we're separate beings of matter, we also are energy. And as energy, we're all kind of one unified you know source. So this is what I think is at the root of how Sometimes we can know what other people are feeling um, in the room with us, or sometimes we can sense that something's wrong, you know, across, you know, I was like seven time zones away from my patient. And there's so many cases like this. It goes, you know, when you talk to people, um, it's really certain forms of intuition um, that we have as human beings. And when you think about intuition, intuition can be broken down into three categories. One is the intuition that's like implicit knowledge, things that, or, or instinct, things that, you know, we f- see something and we feel like something's wrong and we just take the right action at that time, kind of like our survival instinct. That's the first intuition, implicit learning of some sort. The second intuition is really that empathic capacity of when we can sense something in another person who's nearby and when we sense that outside the natural channels of communication. Like you know something somebody's really, really hurting even if they don't say that. Um, or even something might come out of your lips um, or your mouth to another patient um, when they haven't said anything and I have a case I can share with that but first I'll tell you the third kind of intuition which is the non-local intuition which is what happened with this other patient where he was so far away, and yet I felt like something was wrong. And non-local intuition is when we're connected to somebody who isn't in the same space, and it's not the first kind of intuition, which is implicit learning, or the second kind of intuition, which is the more non-verbal cues. It's like we know something, and why do we know? We have no idea why we know. And this is when a mother senses something's wrong with her child, far, far away. Or um, twin studies, there's a lot of uh, twins who are so connected, one will sense that something's wrong with her twin. And then The case I wanted to tell you about the second kind of intuition, it was a case in my uh, private practice of a patient at that point I'd been treating. He was a priest I was treating for about six months. And he came to me and he was talking about how difficult it was to come to therapy because you're exhausted afterwards. You um, share your soul and it just is a really draining experience. So I said to him, Mark, I know that you might want therapy to." Feel like a massage where you relax and you're feeling, you know, you leave feeling completely just oh, calm. And, but oftentimes, the harder that you work, the more exhausted you feel, the actually the more progress you're making. Now, that's not a strange response, except for the fact that here I was saying the word massage and making reference to massage to a priest. Like, what <laughs> in the world? As soon as the words left my lips, I was like, why did I just say that? I, I had no idea. So, as soon as I said that, Mark's jaw dropped and he said to me, that's so strange that you're talking about massages because that's actually the real reason that I came to see you and I've been really reluctant to tell you about this and then he confessed that he had actually been going to massage parlors and felt very guilty about it and that was and he hadn't told anybody ever and that was the first time so this kind of slip of the tongue the fact that this strange thing came out of my mouth without my even knowing why actually ended up creating this catalytic moment in therapy with this patient so that's kind of the type 2 intuition the you know kind of the empathic listening or being able to connect in that way
0: You talk about this connection that we all have and this way that we are all connected and that we're probably a lot more connected than we realize and that we allow ourselves to be. How much of pain and disconnection do you think is caused by consciously trying to put up barriers, whether or not we realize it, and not allowing that natural connection and flow to happen? I think that's a great question. I think so much because it's really,
1: as human beings, there's the soul and then there's the ego. Right? And the soul is that which connects us to everybody else, which is why often people say that we're one unified soul. And at the soul level, we can sense people's suffering. We can sense people's joy. The more joy they have, the more we have. And whenever we inflict suffering on others, we're actually inflicting it also on ourselves without even realizing it. That's the soul part. And then the other part is the ego. And the ego is that which creates this connection. And the manifestations of ego, you know, we talked about earlier are pride and anger and arrogance and believing I'm better than you and you know I need more than you and if you're happy that makes me you know if there's more for you there's less for me like those kinds of beliefs so I feel like what we as a human species need to do is to move from ego consciousness to more soul consciousness which really is about interconnectedness and seeing how we all the more we benefit the more you benefit and vice versa Which one do you think our modern world tends to feed? Well, I think we're moving towards more soul consciousness, but unfortunately there is so much still ego consciousness. And really it comes down to power and how people view power. There's inauthentic power and then there's authentic power. Inauthentic power, a synonym for that is force. Right. And this is people who try to utilize power through domination, through violence, through a victor perpetrator mentality, through trying to stronghold people over and manipulate. And then there's authentic power, which is connecting to your own soul and really changing the world, not through fear and domination, but really through love and through unity and being able to look within and to authentically do what is right for you from a soul level. And that's like i think true power and that's so so different true power doesn't have victim perpetrator true power is more about forgiveness true power is owning one's own power within and
0: acting accordingly
1: as opposed to trying to manipulate others
0: how do you cultivate that soul aspect more how do you try and get that connection to others better if you know that you've put up Boundaries or barriers if you want to be more in touch with the people around you or if you want to be able to have that intuition about the way that, that other people are thinking or feeling or if you do and you want it to be stronger. Yeah. Um, how do you go about that? What What do you recommend? Yeah. So our soul is really, it's at the root of every single person, and it's within
1: everybody, and it's the love within, and the way to connect more to it is really to remove the barriers to it, which is to remove our ego consciousness, to remove the parts of us that operate in the service of fear, in the service of manipulation, of dominance, of anger, of hatred,
0: things like that, and when you remove that, what's left is the soul. You've studied a lot of different types of spirituality and I know that you've gone around the world really studying all kinds of different um, groups and approaches to spirituality. What is it that you think that they all have in common? I think at the end of the day all
1: different spiritual traditions are grounded in a foundation of love and love being the path of transformation the path of elevating one's consciousness transforming connecting to one another and unity and really it's what you know we were talking about it's transitioning the inauthentic power to authentic power so power through fear domination manipulation violence to power through love elevating one's own consciousness and thereby helping other people to raise theirs.
0: So when you're working with patients with so many different spiritual backgrounds or um, even people, like you said, are atheists who are spiritual but um, not religious, how are you talking? Are you talking to them all in a very similar way no matter what their religious underpinning is? Um, Yes,
1: because it really is about understanding the person. And so I talk to them on their terms, whatever their terms happen to be. And whether someone has a very strongly, you know, ritualistic belief of going to church or being a, you know, strong Catholic or a Muslim who prays several times per day, and I've had patients like that, or somebody who's a Hasidic Jew, or if really they consider themselves spiritual but not religious, which is a trend, you know, that's happening in our society. So many people don't Um, adhere to a specific religious dogma or specific rituals but really consider themselves deeply connected whether to mother nature to the universe to something greater than themselves whatever that is i seek to understand the humanity within them and see what makes them tick to really help them to open their heart and understand what's at the root of their soul whoever they are whatever
0: background they come from you said that there's some scientific reasoning behind answered prayers and random coincidences and having faith in them can actually change your outlook for the better. Can you speak Yes,
1: that yes. So this brings up the concept of synchronicity. And synchronicity is a term coined by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung to describe two events that happen that the meaning of which is ascribed by the person who experiences both. For instance, you think about somebody and they call you, right? Two events, you, your thought and then the call, random or meaningful. That's totally up to how you interpret it, right? And for another one, you have a dream about someone you haven't heard from in ages, then you bump into that person on the street. So your dream and then that occurrence. And for some people, you're like, oh, completely random. And for another person, oh, that's meaningful. This must be somehow relevant to my life. some people believe that synchronicities are one of the ways in which the universe or God or you know, collective consciousness, whatever you call that, something greater than oneself, can help you understand the world and can help guide you and protect you. And the more positive synchronicities you have in your life, it's the universe saying you're on the right path, keep going. And the more negative ones you have in your life, it's like change course, something's a little bit off. I don't know if there's as much per se science behind it, as much as it is more the philosophy and it's Carl Jung's ideas kind of brought into today. But we were talking before about intuition. And intuition and synchronicity, I think are actually two sides of the same coin. Intuition is a way to get guidance and connect to your soul in something greater by looking within. Synchronicity is a way To get guidance and connect to something greater by looking outside of yourself at the little signs at the meaningful things that happen in your life these meaningful coincidences now to put a little disclaimer here i'm a psychiatrist right and i also treat a lot of people with very serious conditions like schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder some forms of bipolar where you could have too many of these coincidences or too many synchronicities. You're walking down the street and that billboard is talking to you because you just thought, you know, that song and there it is on the or you're in a train and um, you hear somebody's radio, the radio's talking to you. Like things like that. So giving away your power to meaningful coincidences or synchronicities is not a good way to live either. And if you are gonna live a life where synchronicities are gonna help to guide you and be an important part of your life, a necessary prerequisite of that is first to be mentally healthy. So I would never ever like work with anybody like a schizophrenic who has a lot of these things already happening and is part of their condition to try to recognize synchronicities. Synchronicities is more for somebody who's already mentally grounded and looking to connect spiritually to something
0: greater than themselves. A lot of what we've talked about gets around this theme of fulfillment and purpose and figuring out where you want to head in your life. And this is something that I know you work with patients a lot on, and people who, as you said, um, are in that same stage that you are at, where everything seemed right, everything was good on paper, but just didn't feel right in life, and that there was some kind of fulfillment missing, there was some kind of real connection missing. How do you think that people can go about looking for that purpose, or if they feel that sense of disconnection or they feel that sense that life isn't quite the way they want it to be and they're missing that, that greater sense of fulfillment, that greater sense of purpose.
1: Yeah, I do see a lot of patients with precisely this, and this could be patients either early in life, they've graduated from college and they just have no idea what are they supposed to do, or they're a little further along and they just don't feel passion in life. They're just like, I don't know what I'm passionate about. I don't know if I'm passionate about anything. Or they've kind of closed a chapter in their life and they know that they're done. They're done being a lawyer, but then what's next? And so it's like, it's such an amazing opportunity often to be in that place because it's so exciting. It doesn't feel exciting to the person. They feel overwhelmed and confused and, you know, they need the clarity. But it really is this amazing kind of the world is your oyster. What step are you going to take? Because they can co-create anything, co-create. And when I say co-create, I mean if we want to evoke some sort of spiritual presence in their life and use that to help them, that co-creation is, you know, they're gonna be guided and then ultimately they're gonna choose. So there's gonna be that guidance and the choice together. And so when a patient comes like that um, to my practice, first and foremost, I have them do this little meditation, really asking themselves, what do I most deeply want? And to ask that not to their mind, not to their mother, not to their father, but to their soul. There are many voices in our minds, and it's hard to hear the voice of the soul, which is our intuition, and that's a very still quiet voice that can only be heard when the yelling of our thoughts, when the yelling of our emotions, when all the other voices in our minds, everybody else's voices are shoulds, temporarily quiet. So I have them start to do this little soul exercise, what do I most deeply want, and to see what comes up with that. And then beyond that, there's so many other both cognitive exercises and if a person is mentally stable and grounded and if they're open to spirituality, we start to ask for some signs. We start to pray together. We start to look for synchronicities of, you know, little doors that might open unexpectedly. And there's many different strategies. Like if someone had three possible things they could do. And so you do this thing that um, uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Schwartz called racehorsing. You start all three of them at once and let's see where, where it ends up. Try all three and let the universe take you where you need to be taken. What are soul corrections? So soul corrections, it comes um, from the Hebrew word tikkun, which means correction. And it's the corrections that our souls have come into this world to make. Now, you could know your soul correction by asking yourself the question, what is the most difficult, painful thing in my life? Right, And your pain will point you to your soul correction. And it's those things that you've tried to change if you're someone who's working on yourself, that you've tried to change again and again and again, often much to your chagrin and dismay, and it's still there, right? So for different people, one of my soul corrections, like I shared before, was my emotional unavailability. That's something I needed to transform in order to then have the life that I wanted. I've had many other soul corrections too, but that's just one of them. Other people's soul corrections, actually it's sometimes the opposite. They could be, you know, very dependent and for them to actually correct their soul and become independent whether it means financially independent or independent in terms of their career or you know moving to another city that could be their soul correction for some people their soul correction is breaking away from difficult abusive relationships for some people it's being able to have their voice and speak their truth because their whole life they've been you know speaking somebody else's truth so those are just some examples.
0: How does consciousness shape our reality, and why is that so important to understand? I think
1: at the end of the day, our perspective and our consciousness really creates our reality in many ways, right? You can have five different people looking at the exact same sunset, but because of the lens through which they filter, because of their own perspective, their own experiences, their own sense of identity. They're going to see five different ocean fronts or five different visions. Our consciousness at the end of the day is everything. It shapes whether we see pain or joy in a particular event. it, see, it shapes whether we interpret a challenge as something that's meant to punish us or something that enables us to grow. It shapes you know at the end of the day who we are and every facet of our identity.
0: So being a psychiatrist who has a spiritual bent is, of course, very unique. Have you found that there are other people in your profession who are starting to open up to this kind of um, a way to treat patients? Definitely, definitely. I think the
1: profession is becoming more open to it. And when I first wrote my book, I anticipated that there was going to be a lot of criticism of this book because here I am, a psychiatrist, taking a spiritual position on a lot of matters. And that's actually the opposite of what I found. And thank goodness for that. When I wrote my book, it was endorsed by um, two of the former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, which is the primary association for all psychiatrists um, in the U.S., and also connected to the psychiatrists abroad. So Dr. Pedro Ruiz endorsed the book, and Dr. Rodrigo Muñez, two former presidents of the APA. And that, to me, really gave me so much in a way, relief that there are people who are in the senior levels of our profession who understand, who really get what I'm trying to do and support it, and don't really see this as something that's going against the profession, but really see it as something that needs to be integrated into the profession. And shortly thereafter, I went to give a lecture at Yale where I went to medical school. And there I saw Dr. Barbara Rohrbach, who was one of my professors, and we talked, and he offered me to be a part of the Yale faculty after the book came out, which I also saw, that was another oh, relief, thank goodness. I gladly accepted because I love Yale. And I actually was you know, thinking about that myself to go back on their faculty, and it just worked out beautifully. And with him together, we're starting a spirituality and mental health program at Yale. And so the fact that all this is happening, it shows me that right now the profession is starting to become more open
0: to this, which is so exciting and I think so, so needed on so many levels. And are you seeing other academic institutions embracing the spirituality and psychiatry approach? Definitely.
1: So Dr. Lisa Miller at Columbia has a spirituality and mental health program that's a master's level program that you can actually get a degree in. A lot of other places, Harvard, um, and a lot of other top places really do have a lot with mind, body, spirit, medicine. Sometimes it's more integrative medicine, sometimes holistic medicine, sometimes functional medicine, but often spirituality is sort of included in with those. But yes, more and more so complementary and alternative forms of healing are starting to be embraced by the Western medical profession. And thank goodness in my profession, too,
0: in psychiatry. And now I know that there's probably not too many other psychiatrists in New York that have a spirituality bent that you can refer people to. But if you are looking for patients, if your practice is full, or if people need um, a connection in another place, what kinds of practitioners are you referring patients to?
1: Yeah, so there are other spiritual psychiatrists. And some examples are Dr. Judith Orloff who's written extensive books. Um, She's in California. Um, But also a lot of Psychologists have a very spiritual bent and they can have a bent. I have some uh, shamanic psychologists like Dr. Laurie Nadal, who I've referred many patients to, she's wonderful, as well as other people. So I have a little repertoire of people who are spiritually oriented and if not necessarily spiritually oriented, maybe integrative in their approach or holistic in their approach and certainly open to understanding the person as a whole person, including their spirituality.
0: What gets you excited
1: in the morning? coming here today that was exciting (laughs) and i feel like right now i mean in my life i just really really love my work and i love my patients i love going to work i love seeing the different patients i love my new patients i love being able to connect you know spiritually in the way that i do i love when my husband and i go away for the weekend i love that i feel like i just right now love the mundane duties of daily life i just love like the days of living what keeps you up at night Thinking, am I up at night? <laughs> am I up at night that often? The other, ugh. you know, thank God, thank God I am a good sleeper. So I don't know if I'm necessarily up at night a lot. However, what makes me worry and things like that is really, you know, if a patient's having a really hard time, how am I going to help this person? You know, how, you know, what are the next steps? Everyone's wondering what are the next steps in our own lives. I worry about that. My, I worry about that for my family, for my husband. Um, I don't know if that necessarily keeps me up at night because what I try to do is I try to, as much as possible, to surrender it. But there are times, there are times for sure where it's hard to surrender, where you feel like you want to stronghold things and try to control it all and make it happen exactly as you want it. But then you try and then you realize I'm powerless here. This is, this is bigger than me. What does the practice of surrender look like? So often when you get to surrender, it's after you have tried so hard. It it doesn't have to be. If you're a spiritual person, you can go straight to surrender. You can say, this is what I like, and I'm going to do what I need to do in this world. I'm going to take the steps in the physical world, and then I also surrender it to the universe or God or the light to make it happen. It could be a very smooth process, but often what it looks like is you've tried everything and nothing is working. And you've gotten the messages that you need to surrender about 15 times, but It just wasn't the time. And so after you needed to try it one more time, the 16th time. And after that, after you feel completely broken and alone, and then you decide, okay, maybe it's time to surrender. I just can't do this.
0: What advice would you give your 20-year-old
1: self? I would tell my 20-year-old self to go to spirituality much sooner because I found it only in my 30-year-old self. And so my 20-year-old self was, I think, still in in medical school. And I think, yeah, it was just a time with so much worry and a time with so much um, like studying and your brain's working at maximum capacity and you can't develop other facets of yourself because you're studying. So I would just tell myself, it's all going to be fine. Don't work so hard. (laughs) Take more time to yourself. Go jogging more. Like Relax more. It's all going to be okay. Stop stressing so much. Easier
0: said than done. Yes
1: thank you so much for being here thank you this was wonderful I appreciate it thank you